Hello and welcome to Simplified Security episode number three. This is actually a special uh, interview with a special guest, which I'm about to introduce you to. But do check out the podcast, uh, which is uh, on various different platforms where I have featured some parts of this interview in the podcast because of the short format of the podcast. I couldn't include the full interview. So this video is the complete interview. Hope you enjoy. Today's guest is Marco Ayala. He's a process automation professional with over 25 years of experience working in petrochemical facilities where he designed, engineered, and maintained process automation, safety systems, and integrated networks. He has expertise with safety systems, advanced process control, enterprise historians, and industrial network security, where he worked with enterprise IT to implement a corporate PCN security solution. Marco is active in oil and gas, chemicals industry, maritime domain, including offshore facilities. His passion in security efforts include cybersecurity and working alongside with asset owners, federal, local, and state entities in the endeavor and obligation to protect critical infrastructure and national assets. Mr. Ayala is a certified cyber trainer for ISA, International Society of Automation. He is also a member contributor of AMSC Gulf of Mexico Maritime Security Cyber Panel, InfraGuard member and chief of the Maritime Cross-Sector Council for Ports and Terminals. Here is Mark talking about his journey into industrial control systems and security. Uh, so usually being an instructor, you know, I speak to, to students in, in live forum, um, you know, face to face uh, typically. And so I always get asked, you know, where did you start? You know, yes. where did you get your start into security? And it really actually stems uh, from where I started uh, very young into electronics. And so, you know, I, I branched from electronics and then I got, I took uh, some, some schooling, uh, got into process technology, which is for operations. Uh, and then from operations, I went into instrumentation. So I worked for a large chemicals company uh, here in the U.S. based in Houston. And so, you know, a lot of my students always ask me, how do you get started? Well, it started there at instrumentation. Uh, and uh, in electrical. So I went from instrumentation, electrical, started to uh, to work with uh, the PLCs, the programmable logic controllers, uh, then took some classes, some vendor-specific courses uh, for the distributed control system, took batch uh, training uh, and also configuration training, but on top of that, on HMI design and graphics. So it was a, it was a training uh, a curriculum through my career to where the com the company that I worked for was when I got back from the training they put me to task. So hey, you just took batch, go configure our recipes and our formulas for this new product line that we have. So I go through that and security was never a question. It was always you know uh, make the product, do the products right, safety is number one, production is number one point one is like what I always like to say. Yes. And uh, so that went on. So HMI design and then I started. Uh, went off and, and took some training for the safety systems that we had at the site 
And so I was also doing safety, you know, safety instrumenting functions. Nice. And, um, and then that, that branched off. And then before you knew it, I was also the historian person that was handling the site uh, process historians. And, uh, and so that, that actually ventured off to where I was the, for the U.S., I was the, the uh, Pi guy. Uh, the OSI Pi guy, which is a, a so well that, was that the time when I went into like network security? That's and where that's where the the rubber paved the the highway for me um, as far as the uh, the connectivity goes because um, I at that time, especially with the uh, with the with communications with OSI and Pi and the historian, that was really the only connectivity that we had to the enterprise. There was no DMZ there, there, you know, like we have now. And, uh, and, you know, so when I got into security, I was, it was overnight. It was one of those, we cannot get to the historical data. We cannot get our environmental data. We don't know where we're at in our lab data. And so uh, overnight I had to learn how to, uh, and, and work with IT, mm -hmm. uh, the security side. And so, um, you know, I had a really good uh, group of folks there at the site. And so, uh, you know, we started implementing security. So, and that was new to me. I was not, I didn't come from the traditional information technology piece. I came from the, the before they called it OT, the industrial control system space. Okay. So, so, so my, my first taste of it was in the early 2000s where we actually had a historian uh, that served up our historical data at the site uh, that was breached, uh, unavailable, and uh, it was an internal denial of service. IT security was able to determine it was localized machines across our flat pan domain. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to understand a global company that had network. a flat yep. pan network. Wow. So they were able to yeah. determine that, yes, we were getting denial of service from our own sites in Peru, Chile, uh, Sweden. And so when I asked them, well, who are they? And they're like, well, we don't know, but they're authorized machines. They're on our network. So it was just misconfigured so, machines. Miscon yeah, misconfigured machines, but somehow they were able to get authentication to the historian. So okay. that freaked us all out. And that's where I, I really put on the security hat. Again, this is early 2000s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I made security priority number one. So we were able to restore the historian, get things back up and going. And we really started that defense in depth model. Um, and so, uh, and this was in the early uh, stages of ISA 99, the committee and so forth. Um, so I started going to the industrial control systems joint working groups. Uh, I actually attended in 2009, uh, the, uh, the five day training, the red team, blue team in Idaho national labs. Uh, yeah. And uh, that was an excellent training. So, we, so this, this thing that happened earlier in the early 2000s, that I was telling you with the historian, I had several years before I went to INL, so we were able to get security measures put into place, and we had, you know, uh, rolled out like an industrial defender solution at the site, and so we were doing security pretty, what we thought was, you know, cutting edge, bleeding edge maybe at some point, yeah. and uh, what we found out is when I went to Idaho National Labs within the first four hours, um, the uh, Mark Fabro was my instructor. And uh, within the first four hours, my jaw dropped and I was calling the site saying, hey, we probably need to disconnect this unit, this unit and this unit, because uh, I kind of went in with the chip on my shoulder thinking, hey, we're secure. Well, there's nothing new that, that these these folks here at Idaho National Labs can't you know, teach us. You know, we're I think we're ahead of the curve. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, when I got there, I was uh, handed uh, 
information. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We need to rethink this. So fortunately I was able to go to that. So, so how I got into security was, I guess, the uh, school of hard knocks way um, and uh, learn the hard way. But uh, the, the venture is, has been, you know, uh, working on, you know, the, the defense in depth strategies, putting things in place, uh, host intrusion, network intrusion detection, putting in fences and perimeters to be able to do the, do the detection piece. Yes. And so uh, fortunately, I was able to uh, become an ISA uh, certified instructor. I participated in, in uh, creating some of their, their training materials. Uh, ISA is the International Society of Automation, yes. and uh, and so uh, I've actually been fortunate enough to train uh, hundreds and hundreds of students yes. uh, from all over the world here in the U.S. coming into the U.S. for training, uh, and also uh, three years running for the National Guard Cyber Shield. Sure, so that's, I think that's, another great initiative. That's it's a big bucket for me is to uh, train, and let me tell you, we've got some some very very fabulous. Uh, star players in our in our military when it comes to uh, security. Um, you know, it, what, 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 what's nice is I'm able to show them what a PLC looks like, what it does, how it operates, uh, what are the low hanging fruits that people often miss in securing these devices. And, uh, and in, in case of you have to go in and secure these things or get them back up and running, what are the first tasks in line of what you need to do, so. Got it. That's how I got into security. I don't know if that's uh... that's a pretty impressive uh, story in the sense that you know you had to start at a very uh, basic level where you had you said you had like a single network, uh, flat network, and and how was it uh, you know interfacing with the IT in in those days? You know what kind of challenges you had faced then, and when you compare that to I guess some of the challenges. Um, OT folk face now with IT, uh, were they very similar or was different? Well, I think I think it was still very young in its infancy. You know, there there was no real convergence of the IT OT talk that we have, you know, for the last five years or so. But in the early days, it was trying to obtain a static IP address from IT and in uh, in in knowing the folks and really working the relationships, but. Uh, having to define why it's needed and, and so forth. But, um, you know, things have changed. You know, there, back then there there was, uh, we really didn't have DMZs at the site. We had different manufacturing units. We had multiple reactor areas. We had, you know, uh, you know, in a typical specialty chemist plant, you've got a lot of things going on. You've got boilers, you've got, uh, you know, yeah, uh, thermal oxidizers, you've got scrubbers, you've got all these different things. And, uh, and all those, those were not on flat networks. They were subnetted into uh, to being able to get to a historian. So the historian was the major pivot into yes. all of these systems. And so um, working with, uh, with the IT side to get a, you know, infrastructure in place for that uh, and putting in a DMARC, because uh, it really wasn't a DMARC uh, at the time. So, but this, this was almost two decades ago. So things that really... Uh, have you know have changed, uh, especially in the control systems and, and safety system space. Uh, you know I've I've been around a long time to know a lot of the the key players at some of the vendors because you know for one where I was at we had to talk to the vendors so we knew you know the Emersons the Siemens the you know and so it's uh, talking to them in the early days saying hey we really need your PL your CPUs your actual controllers to have more security baked in and 
And although they agreed, uh, many of the vendors at that time early on said, you know, we're a control systems company. Um, if we were not really an IT security company. So if we put all these measures in at the controller level, that's going to increase you know, CPU loading. Uh, and that's really going to take away from the bandwidth and the horsepower of, of scanning and doing all the control system and advanced process control mechanisms. Yes. So they really pushed back at the time and said, hey, you know, from a security standpoint, that's outer perimeter. That's that's on you. Right. right. And so now that now in today's in today's realm, uh, security is not only options, it's services from vendors and yeah. and uh, you've got third party remote. Uh, support connected times sure. all the time. Yeah, I think the switch is flipped where I think the more responsibilities on their shoulders also versus yeah. just the, the, way and the customer. And the technologies changed too. You know, the horsepower, you know, in the early days of, of what these PLCs or the, the actual DCS hardware had, uh, you know, were, were fairly limited. Yes. Um, and now the horsepower like this, you know, this S7-1500 is, is taking, uh, you know, a lot a lot of uh, horsepower uh, comparable to even the bigger, bigger systems from, from that same vendor. Right. And so just the technology has changed. You know, we're, yeah. we're doing a lot more with less space and more, more horsepower. Yes. And I realized that also with like uh, computing power and like virtualization, which was uh, only seen as an IT side of things is now moving, you know, it's already moved into the OT side right. and a lot of uh, folks are um, virtualizing their environment. And that kind of concerns me because, you know, there are, if you go talk to somebody in IT, you know, they have those lessons learned from the early days of their virtualization. And when you think about, you know, it's a, it's a really nice school tool for uh, the OT folks to have in terms of, you know, running, spinning up a VM when you need it, uh, having high availability and all of that. But then with the recent uh, news in, you know, the, the mm -hmm. sunburst and, VMware and Microsoft and all of those vulnerabilities. I mean, now you're basically getting it as closer to your uh, OT environment, these risks. Yes. Um, so what, what do you what do you say to that? I mean, how do you um, what do you tell uh, somebody in OT to be mindful of? What are the things that we need to be looking at? So technology is wonderful. It's how you use it, how you utilize it. Uh, you know, I, I come from a discipline of the, the uh, process engineering side of the house. So uh, safety is always paramount. Safety is number one. So when we start talking about digitalization and connectivity to the cloud and having all these new, you know, the virtualization piece, these are all well and good. Uh, and I think from a structure standpoint, they, they should be utilized. And from a security piece, you should know how those are connected inbound and outbound. Uh, one thing, your safety system shouldn't be connected to the cloud. Uh, you know, these are just some practical from a process safety standpoint, connecting your safety system to an external network for the sake of security for monitoring uh, in a traditional island system is not really uh, something that's desired. And that's my that's my professional opinion, because um, I know a lot of these systems have been converged for many years now. The, the thing is, is that there's so much uh, skin in the game when it comes to you know having the safety system so I, I think i think the the more open connectivity we have on these public networks that were not ever designed for you know infrastructure such as power utility uh you know connecting refineries offshore uh, 
you know, from wind farms to even platforms offshore, you know, using public backbone, uh, you know, it just, it, it's not, it's not the right thing to do now. Um, so with that being said is, you know, if you're looking at, uh, your external threat actors or what, <laughs> what I like to say is the internal threat actors are just uh-huh. as, as scary. And, and, and yeah. some of the times it's, it's, it's accidental, non-intentional. Yeah. And so, you know, we do have the external threats, uh, you know, um, and the internal threats are just as real. And a lot of the insider threats are even even more real. So what I like to say is keep your control system buried deep down, you know, defense in depth strategies. You're going to use virtualization. Does it need to speak out to the cloud? Does it need to speak out to a public network? Probably not. Uh, you know, ice, being able to isolate your system as far as having a, like a like an IRP, an incident response plan, yes. making sure that you can actually uh, isolate from the DMARC to the enterprise, having something in place to be able to do that. Uh, maybe changing your architecture and infrastructure. Obviously, the sunburst and this this later uh, this uh, last piece of, uh, of uh, threats. You know, it may have may have changed a lot of things in how we how we deploy our architecture. So you, you talked about incident response uh, plan, uh, and what have you seen in like industries where you know you know IT has something already set up, you know because they've been doing it for a while, uh, but with the OT, you know it's just a checkbox. You know, do you have uh, an incident response plan? But that's pretty much what I have seen. You know, where it's not very detailed. Uh, what have you seen in terms of uh, incident response plan for the OT? So I've seen some really good incident response plans that are like your, your you know, 15, 20 pager tells you who to call to what switch rack to go to, what switch room to go to and what cables to pull to just a one or two pages of here's who you call. And, and, and you know, this is some of the best practice. Um, so it depends, you know, what I can tell you. Uh, that I talked to our maritime uh, partners and our MITSA facilities is working with your IT in your IRP, but build an IRP that that both the IT and OT can come in and say, this is our DMARC, this is where we need to shut off, and maybe not just logically, but physically, you know, in a, without impacting safety, without impacting production, you should have an ability to do that and test that uh, at all times. And you really should, if you think about it, if you cannot connect, disconnect from IT's infrastructure locally on your site from an operational standpoint and run safely, then you, you've got an architecture and engineering problem, honestly. Yes. And, and so I, that's being a big challenge because I see a lot of companies, uh, you know, outsourcing or I don't know what the right word is, but like the firewall guys are somewhere, you know, in another country because their service providers are, you know, overseas and so logically controlling something is not quick and i definitely agree with you on the physical aspect you need to be able to get in there and turn it off and be confident that when you turn off whatever that switch uh, firewall whatever you're you're cutting off shouldn't affect production Uh, i think that's i think somehow gets left out uh, even though it is so critical so there's planning so yeah. there, there are some tier, tier one, tier two facilities that I've, I've worked in that have actually got uh, right at the, they're using, for example, they they went by the uh, NIST 882 uh, regarding um, parallel uh, diodes, or not diodes, I'm sorry, parallel firewalls. 
Okay. Uh, and so, uh, or paired firewalls is their term. So where you're using vendor A for uh, one firewall and vendor B for the downstream firewall. And so, uh, which is really good because from that standpoint, vendor A could be your remote third party somewhere sitting, you know, overseas like you're talking about, yeah. where the second one that's downstream is the actual operational technology engineers mm -hmm. to where they could lock that down logically. Okay. But uh, I have seen and worked in tier two facilities where they've also put in physical switches, hand switches, AB type mm -hmm. switches. Okay. They can truly isolate the connection up to that top, uh, top firewall. And so, and it, so it just depends how far do you want to go? It, it, if, yeah. if, with this current situation right now, there may be uh, some plants that are probably saying, Hey, we should go ahead and engage these until we know more. Right. Uh, again, if, if by doing that, you have to shut down, then you need to rethink your engineering pieces of that. You know, that's why it's important to maybe have your local historian local below the DMZ, right? Yeah. And yes. then that way, every all your data is being historically kept. So uh, from a uh, environmental standpoint, being able to to uh, to push out reports, right? Uh, you should Rest have that. Keeping records, you have all of that is still contained. Everything else, inbound, outbound, is is executed. It's uh, it's terminated. So, um, and you should be able to do that. Now, if if you if you, for those that are out there, if if you say, well, if we did that, we don't even know what would happen. You, you need to start figuring that out. You need to start mapping that out. You need to start understanding what that would affect, uh, and uh, and and know that, right? You know, especially if you're doing peer-to-peer -peer systems and you're using your enterprise domain as yeah. some type of backplane hub, even if you're encrypting the data, it's not widely uh, accepted practice in the engineering communities. Sure. Anyway, so those are some two cents there that, that kind of goes back through memory lane. And, yeah. and uh, here lately, uh, I'm, I'm actually sector chief for InfraGuard through okay. the uh, maritime, uh, maritime community. Uh, here in Houston, Galveston, and also recently, uh, I'm the uh, uh, co-chair for the Area Maritime Security Committee for the Outer Continental Shelf for offshore platforms and drilling. And so one of our big things that we're uh, going to be working on is cyber. Cyber security on, uh, you know, from the operational side, but also the IT infrastructure um, and getting people engaged, even to the physical security piece. Yes, uh, Tell a little bit more about InfraGuard for my audience here. You know, some of the audience uh, have are probably just starting out in cybersecurity, and then there are some that are already kind of seasoned professionals. But how would you introduce InfraGuard and what does it do? So InfraGuard is a uh, public-private partnership, a federal partnership with the uh, FBI, and so uh, typical requirements are you know you you have to be a U.S. citizen or here in the in the U.S. And so what that partnership allows is that uh, we can get uh, good communications back and forth from this uh, partnership uh, in regards to threats and in uh, and, and documents like TLP green, uh, you know, information that's relevant or pertinent to the industry you're in. So there's different groups. So there's the maritime, for example, domain that I represent. Uh, there's the oil and gas and chemical uh, uh, CSC, as they call it, the Cross Sector Council. Uh, so it's a, it really is a, a, a strong partnership with, uh, with FBI uh, here locally. Okay. 
Yeah, and then the the maritime part of it, where I know uh, last uh, couple of years there has been a lot of changes in terms of regulations and what is expected of like a chemical plant uh, mm-hmm. to have. Uh, talk a little bit about what are those changes and what what really happened there. So uh, for many years now, Coast Guard has been really looking at uh, cybersecurity, and uh, so they recently earlier this year uh, pushed out the uh, what they call Mavic. It's national. Uh, it's uh, the 120 is the number on it, and basically it's a circular uh, that pivots in for facilities that are MITSA uh, regulated. And so what that really is pushing towards is that chemical facilities and terminals and ports uh, need to be able to have in their physical security plan uh, uh, annexes with cyber in regards to cyber for anything that's computers and networks. So uh, traditionally, um, you know, guns, gates, guards, dogs, those type things have been in facility security plans and, uh, and, are, and are inspected annually. So one of the key components that has been missing, but um, it has been the cyber piece and making sure that you are documenting your vulnerabilities. And vulnerabilities could be third party remote access to like, for example, like you said, you know, you may have to put in a help desk request that uh, may go overseas to another country. Uh, where the uh, and it's it's really hard to vet those people that uh, that are sitting over there or what their intentions are. So um, so you have to look at that. So the, you know just understanding your vulnerabilities is is something new uh, to be put into it. Now it's not really new to the MITSA piece. Um, mm-hmm. You know communications and uh, and uh, networks have been somewhat already put into that, but the the NAVIC kind of highlights more defined information within the NAVIC. Okay. So, so I'm guessing all of our field security officers uh, are now having to deal with cyber, uh, you know, information and how that affects. So, you know, I, I can see kind of like a skills gap there, meaning uh, with the cyber uh, thing related, you know, how, how is that? What, how do you, how would you go about filling that gap and so, having that? Consigned so, to that information so, exchange. So what's what's neat is you know within with the InfraGuard, the maritime group that I'm in, is really getting the facility security officer who's traditionally you know physical again cameras, gates, badging, and 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 bringing them into our discussions and uh, giving them some cyber education, some cyber 101, and uh, and helping them you know to to become the cyber FSO. Uh, you got to understand, you know, with the Coast Guard putting this onto the FSOs, many of them don't care to be cyber people. That's really not their their game. But now that it's on them, they at least need to have enough information and knowledge and know-how to not just talk to the inspectors of the Coast Guard, for example, or regulators, but also to talk to folks like you in the IT and the OT side to be able to say, hey, how do I interpret this, right? And so a lot of the elements in our discussions are the, the, the jargon, the, the, uh, the definitions, uh, you know, and some of the, uh, you know, the, the topics that are typically and traditionally done. Remote access, access control, system hardening. What does that mean? So uh, I think it, it starts with the dialogue and in uh, getting also some training, uh, getting folks trained that are traditional, uh, you know, physical security officers. And getting them just uh, some basic uh, cyber, I don't like the term hygiene, but cyber training, yes. uh, you know, so some just some some basic uh, knowledge there. But really to, to formulate a communications with folks like yourself 
uh, you know, and uh, and be able to put that into their plan, uh, you know, documenting their vulnerabilities and having a roadmap, what that roadmap looks like to remediate if it's even possible. Sure. Yeah. And I think that kind of talks, you know, when you're talking about the uh, the DCS or the OT vendors back back in the days when they said, oh, that's not our job. Cybersecurity is what you do. We do control systems. And it's very similar kind of conversation with, I think, all the other areas in, in a plant, for example, now with the FSO, the field security officer, you know, going, hey, uh, well, I'm, my, my table's already full with things, you know, I now I need to deal with the cyber stuff. That's not my thing. So I, I think, like you said, it's just a uh, eye opening for everybody that everyone is actually involved in this uh, collective uh, piece called cybersecurity. And um, I think it's uh, organizations are still trying to understand uh, who needs what training. But then, like you said, what kind of training are we talking about? Are there any training that so there's there's a lot of different trainings that are out there, um, but for specifically, I, I, I like to refer to some of the top tier ones that, that that we know. For example, you know ISA has got the industrial cybersecurity training, so uh, they've got several modules there um, that are both in person boot camp style uh, and also virtual, so uh, like a virtual training. Also, SANS is a very very good uh, training. Uh, for uh, you know, for the OT side and the IT side as well, they've got a lot of certifications, also into the ICS space. So both are really, really good, and they they complement they complement each other. Uh, you know, one may be standards based, the other one may be uh, blue team, red team based. But uh, I think uh, those those are the top tier ones. When it comes to the FSO type training, I think those are still being uh, you know built um, you know as we speak. So I think you'll start seeing those more in 2021. Um, yes, uh, because think, you, you have to keep in mind, you know, there's there's a, there's more than just your standard IT stuff. You know, being able to talk about OSI models and stuff to a, to an FSO is probably not what they're they're there to really learn. Yes. So you know, breaking down the, the the top pieces from a what could be vulnerable to even uh, standards. Uh, both uh, IEC type standards that a site might use or NIST standards, but, uh, you know, also, um, you know, talking about TWIC, you know, talking about, uh, you know, uh, Coast Guard initiatives and, and so forth yes. for, for the FSOs in that industry. So, right. And I think one of the things that I've seen uh, kind of working, you know, when you want to introduce somebody into the cybersecurity, you know, lingos or terms that we use uh, in our practices is do like a walkthrough with them every month you know you know if you have a big area uh, just uh, get the folks that are interested or needs to learn you know learn some aspect of it just walk through with them and find all of the the you know items that needs to be fixed or or you know right. just do that with them and then you're talking with them and that, that's when you're learning and i have actually learned a lot of things like that um, you know which is non-cyber security related which is mostly physical security and mm -hmm. I think it can go both ways. Uh, so I think that's one of the ways we can kind of um, start at least uh, creating awareness uh, in in, uh, in uh, organizations. I, you know, you, you, and that's very true, Dergesh. And what I was going to say too is that uh, you know, operations uh, in at the at the site facilities, your your facility security officers, and your those are your first line of physical defense. 
And so they need to be able to understand uh, some of the, the, the risk. Portable media. Portable media is out there, uh, you know, so being able to look at whether a, a contractor is bringing in a laptop, USB storage media, all these things could have impact to operations. So they need to be able to understand what to look for, uh, how it can be used, uh, why it's important to, to ask the right questions. And to get a feel for what type of work is going to be done before that person enters into the facility. Uh, so from a cyber piece, we have to be very cognizant of what we're letting in from a virtual, the unseen uh, yes. network into our facilities. And we always have to be cognizant of uh, those connections and those, uh, you know, and the folks that could be coming in. So, okay. So one of the pet peeves, uh, you know, we've We've kind of talked about this before in our previous engagements. Um, so one of the pet peeves I have with the security is the use of USBs. Now, mm. I have used USBs and I continue to use them on, on certain levels, but definitely not, maybe not on our safety systems, but we still have the need uh, for USB. So what do you tell folks who say USBs can't go away? Is there an alternate for that, or you think we should use USBs, but with certain things in mind? There, there are definitely options, and I, I, I know of some some critical asset owners that that uh, have uh, have done a couple things. Uh, some asset owners that have utilized removing all USB usage um, completely, and uh, and using uh, network uh, secure network drop drops for uh, being able to get applications and, and also to send their, their backups and, and data uh, to where IT is involved from a security standpoint. Um, and then I've also seen companies that use, um, uh, that have created very good, very strong uh, USB portable media uh, documents, uh, document you know, procedures and, and, uh, and I can tell you that those, those seem to work. One of the, one of the big parts with portable media is um, is making sure that you know what portable media you have, what portable portable media exists that is in your usage, and documenting those and having a good plan in place and um, and also being able to scan the USBs uh, without infecting your system because we I've I've been out on facilities offshore where we've taken a pristine brand new stick that that even the the client you know, supplied and, you know, went through it, completely wiped it. And, uh, and we were able to go out to the, the system, the control system, put it into the system, be able to get the files that we needed for our, for our assessment. And then going back to, to rescan that same stick uh, within the system from the IT side, the security side found that the system already had viruses. So it's a two way street. So yes. It is crazy. So what I've seen work is that uh, we have, I have customers that uh, have deployed, purchased secure uh, FIPS 140-2, uh, uh, I believe, uh, secure okay. sticks. Uh -huh. and so, and they're serialized. And so they've got serial numbers on them. So in their policies and procedures, they, they specifically state, you'll, these sticks never leave the facility. They never leave, leave the site. When you're going to do a backup or use this portable media, you, when you go into the control room, you need to log the your name, you know, the date, the time. Then you have to also write down the stick number, the serial number being used. So okay. you have some trace, and, and they digitize that. So when you go into 
a work order. The work order already specifies what, what serial number is used uh, yes. and, uh, and the, the files that were transferred, how they were uh, scanned in and out and, you know, and, and timestamped. So, okay. Because portable media is is very difficult to to wean from, but who uses the portable media, how it's used, and how it's contained is very 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 important. Okay. And uh, and there are some vendors that have come out with some very unique tools. Uh, I know. I was going to ask you about that. Um, so I guess that was my next question: was you know, are there any good solutions out there that if somebody wanted to try, whether it is um, I don't know what they call it now, but they're uh, Symantec or company uh, probably changed their name now so there there are many solutions out there uh, some of the the larger refineries and chemical plants that uh, that I've seen use uh, vendor solutions uh, so for example Honeywell has got a, a nice solution that is uh, out off of the uh, process control network uh, it's not there so what they utilize that machine for is just to scan USB before usage in after usage so and that that machine actually for example stays up to date stays patched and um, and usually resides uh, DMZ or below uh, but again so not I'm guessing it has a direct connection to the internet it has all the engines uh, of uh, you know it wireless can. definitions or it, it or does it go to the cloud no so yes and no it depends on the scenario but what I've seen has has worked is they keep the system up to date on frequent uh, updates and patches. Okay. And so what they'll do is they'll they'll open up the connection, be able to grab the updates, uh, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, and then be able to utilize that disconnecting from the internet or disconnecting from through the the corporate domain to get an outbound connection. So it just uh, it, it depends on the on uh, who's using it and how they have it set up. That's so. great. Cool. Um, so I wanted to. So as far as your, yeah, I go ahead. had a question as far as your pet peeve. What what have you seen uh, work with the USBs? So I think uh, being able to scan uh, uh, the USB in a uh, isolated machine, which is not on the network, and being able to uh, say it's clean and identify, you know, if there was an issue with the USB, uh, mm -hmm. recording that, and then you know going back to the vendor and saying, you know saying we can't use the USB, saying no to USB, I think, uh, but then finding an alternate way to get that that data or file or whatever you're trying to get in. Um, I think you have to do that in, instead of saying, oh, yeah, we're just going to use it because, you know, we, we have this, you know, we have a few minutes left. We need to get this uh, file transferred over. I think security can wait. You have to wait, uh, have patience. And uh, in companies, we don't have a procedure like you were talking about. I think those companies and organizations should take note and and because I think even though it's uh, it's not widely used, I would say uh, in like IT, you know, IT, I think systems, they're very well blocking these uh, devices. Now they can identify uh, if you plug in a uh, headset versus a USB, they are able to identify what devices these are. But on the OT side, our uh, HMI stations or our engineering stations still are wide open, uh, most of them. And, and uh, you probably disagree with me because I guess depending on the orga organization and how they've implemented it, like, you know, the other day we talked about, it really depends on who's implementing what and mm -hmm. how secure things are. 
but I, I still feel that people have this bypass uh, mentality saying, oh, I'm going to bypass it uh, because uh, this is important. I need to get this project going or this FAT done. And they would just bypass certain systems mm-hmm. but not then come back and put it, you know, put it in order again. Or and so I think I would say I've seen a lot of the bypasses in my life and I've, I've started kind of disliking the overall use of USBs. But then I understand that it is hard to get away from a USB, especially for somebody making changes, configuration changes, want to move a file in and out. It's really easy to do that, but then it brings a lot of challenges, right. uh, with, like with a snicker net and you know other. Uh, I mean, there are so many things you you read and watch on the on the on the YouTube, and you know there, you can buy stuff off eBay nowadays, sure. and you know you kind of think you know okay, transferring malicious files is one thing. But then killing the whole system with plugging a USB—that's that's, that's sure. a whole other other deal, especially like a control system uh, yeah. related component. Which so. which then also takes the physical aspects, right? You have to be able to access the the environment. You got to be able to access the machine. And I, you know, I'm surprised sometimes when I when I when I hear or see things where you know those doors when you can use a, a dust can spray it. <laughs> trigger the sensor, open the door where the locks are not in standard, you know, they're, they're not in the right format, whatever, the deadbolt, you know, right. or it is a cabinet key that's actually still hanging in the cabinet versus sure. those are locked up somewhere. Small things like that. And then that kind of leads into you getting access to something that you shouldn't have access to. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's my pet peeve on that, on the USB thing. So. There's one piece that I wanted to add it to my discussion on USB. If you're going to utilize the USBs and make it a you know a policy and a procedure, and, and you you give training to the folks in your organization that are going to utilize it, especially in the operational technology space, uh, one thing to consider is application control whitelisting, okay. uh, and and having that on the machines. Uh, we've seen that 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 works in protecting uh, malicious uh, software, malicious uh, Trojans from uh, actually taking over a machine. So uh, with that being said, so DLLs can't be swapped and so forth. So what I what I recommend is that have a, a multi-tiered approach on if you're going to utilize USBs uh, and have particular users doing them, and then we're only going to use these particular uh, USBs themselves. Okay. that are traceable and trackable. They never leave the site, for example. Yes. Uh, and, the, and so you put that all in your policies, procedures, and your rollout, uh, but also look at maybe running application control. Most of your manufacturing uh, uh, automation vendors support it. Okay. Uh, there's different, there's different uh, uh, third-party applications that they all allow on their system, whether it's a distributed control system uh, or even uh, historian. And what this application control whitelisting does is it locks down the machine uh, when you have a known good machine, you can lock the system down. And so if anything gets uh, on that machine or introduced to that machine, they won't execute. And so now that being said, the machine can still act as a host. So you can still drop the, the, uh, the item onto the, the machine or, or what have you, but uh, just keep in mind it won't execute. And that's what you're trying to prevent is the execution of a worm or malware or or ransomware, let's just say. So some yes. of the quick wins we see a, a lot of the asset owners in oil, gas, and chemical is rolling out the application control and locking that in. 
and uh, and making sure that they have a good policy and procedure for portable media usage and and and, and test it. And when I say test it, also look and go do a pool, you know, monthly and see are the only USB drives that have been seen uh, this particular model. And if you're seeing other models and you've got some people that are not following red policy, flag. Right. red flag, and then you need to to discipline uh, yes. you know, and, and, and go from there. Because again, we're not mixing water paints that are biodegradable and atmospheric pressure. Mm-hmm. So uh, especially right. in the world that you and I live in, is that um, you know there, there's a lot of consequences, both environmental impact, uh, yes. safety impact, and uh, and uh, company impact. So uh, people need to take it very serious. Uh, and USBs, portable media, are are some of the big pieces. Physical security trumps everything. Make sure you have a good solid practice there. Sure. Uh, again, yeah, and um, you know, and and try to look at uh, looking at application control. I think the cost has come down significantly. The vendors yeah. support it. And um, and it, it's a help to to build upon the security in yes. that defense in depth onion that we like. I to like talk. that. Yes, defense in depth. I think that's the key word there um, in, in right. that kind of approach. We can. I was going to jump off this topic a little bit and go okay. into uh, some training things that you're doing. Um, you know, with ISA 99. So so with ISA, they've got some really good uh, classes. They also have some boot camps. So the industrial cyber courses that uh, that I teach are the what they call the IC32, IC33, 34, 37, and there is a new one uh, that is, uh, and those those four courses are particularly uh, dedicated to the IEC 62443 standards. Okay. So those classes uh, allow you to understand what a good program, what a good um, uh, system uh, of, of measures looks like in, in having a program and, and having from everything from governance down to what what is good, uh, but also what the standards say. So, uh, you know, there's many standards within the 62443. So these classes help understand which ones uh, you should look at and what to uh, what to follow. Uh, Are these we, like tiered, um, like beginner, uh, intermediary, or how, how does these different it's it's so I wouldn't say tiered. I would say it, it's it is sequential. So you would you would want to start with the 32, which is an introduction into the 62443 set of standards. It uh, kind of lays out how it is mapped out uh, and talks about the relevant standards that are published within uh, the 32. Uh, and then it uh, also goes into the the life cycle, which is the 62443. Uh, function is the cybersecurity lifecycle okay. for OT, and and then so the 33 is starts really getting into the assessment piece uh, on how to assess, and then uh, 34 and 37 those are what I like to say the hands-on uh, pieces of the courses that uh, uh, provide you from a run and maintain to a uh, engineering uh, testing and and uh, monitoring type scenario. So it, it, it builds upon that. As first you learn the standard, what it's about, how it's put together and how it's um, uh, how it falls to, falls in place, you know, as far as the, yeah. and then the next ones move on through all the way to run and maintain. So. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, so if we wanted, somebody had to go look it up, we just go to the ISA uh, website, um, yep. ISA.org. Yes, you can go to isa.org, 
and uh, you can look for the uh, cybersecurity uh, tracks. Again, the IC32, 33, 34, and 37. Uh, and those are really good courses. Uh, and uh, some of them are offered uh, online, so you can do it at, as your pace. So the IESA IEC 62443 does have a uh, cybersecurity certificate program uh, with the four courses that I was telling you about. And those, again, the, the four courses uh, walks you through the fundamentals, uh, risk assessment, design and engineering, and then the uh, maintenance specialist. So it's four certificates. And once you receive the certificates for those four classes, you uh, and you test out you get the uh, ISA IEC 6443 cybersecurity expert. And so, and that, that is a, um, a certificate that uh, you can, you know, that, that many companies are, are looking to, to, to see that you have, especially in the OT space. That is great information, Mark. I want to thank you, Mark, for sure. your time. Uh, you always, I look forward to again talking to you um, soon. I, uh, I Appreciate that, Dragesh. It's always a pleasure talking to you as well. And uh, and, and the same the same holds true. You know, I, I learned things uh, from talking to you as well. And you know, the the, the key thing here, and, and that you and I are, are are very much aware of, is is training and, and educating the the human. Uh, you know, the interfacing piece of of these systems and 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 getting that not just awareness and training. Awareness and training are nothing without culture. And so the culture within a facility is very important. And so by doing podcasts and doing these things that you've done, you help uh, help people with that culture piece because security is very important.